CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used a subscriber model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $60 a year, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $120 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast. Not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Today, we've got a couple different topics we're going to discuss. Uh, we're going to discuss the the unfolding uh, war in Israel, um, but we're going to kind of deal with that at the beginning because that that's a fast moving story, and and there's we're still in the phase where there's such a chaos about it that it's you know what we say could be could be no longer operative um, you know, by the time you hear the podcast. And we're also not experts on it. So we're going to deal with that kind of quickly. Then we're going to get into the speaker stuff, which we, I mean, who's an expert on that? But like, we're as good as, it, you know, we're as good as you're going to get. So we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about some Supreme Court oral arguments that center on, a, on yet another redistricting case. And Kate, uh, listen to those oral arguments uh, just earlier today or to or sometime today. I'm sort of losing track of things here. So we're going to get into all of that stuff. Uh, but we're going to, you know, um, I'm sure you are seeing everything that has unfolded uh, in, in Israel and Gaza over the last, I guess it's four and a half days now. I, I kind of lose track. I think this, I think this U.S. time I think we woke up to this Saturday morning. Um, I, like I said, I'm, I'm, I've been sort of uh, uh, keeping up on it, living through it over the last four plus days. So I think that's right. And there's just so many, you know, there's so many different moving parts of this. I'm sure you've seen the the various uh, counts of basically just sort of like a mass murder of about a thousand people, um, almost all of which were in um, a series of kibbutzim, which are uh, collective farms 
um, basically. Uh, they've changed over, over the course of the last century, but that's basically the idea. And uh, some villages and towns that are in the south of Israel and relatively close to the border with the Gaza Strip. So what happened here is you had um, a probably about, it seems like about a thousand uh, Hamas fighters that in a pretty well executed operation um, managed to breach the series of uh, fences and sort of electronic surveillance that they have along the border with Gaza. And, uh, you know, once they got through there, um, they caught the Israelis really totally off guard. So this is moving into civilian areas. So, right, there's not like, um, there's not like another line of defense there that is, you know, waiting for what is basically an irregular army coming through. And they went into these towns and villages and just started killing people indiscriminately. And again, you've, you've seen the the stuff here um you know one thing i'm not going to be able to to do any justice to the larger story I'll, I'll just mention a few observations that you may find significant or interesting one thing that i think is worth noting even though it's only a small part of this story that and that is that the uh hamas army you know some people get a charge about identifying these people as terrorists. I, I don't, to, to me, calling them fighters versus terrorists is not, I don't, I don't, that doesn't have a lot of significance to me. I'm not, I'm not trying to signal a moral argument about, about labels. Um, you know, you may differ, that's fine. Uh, one of the things they were able to do here was have a very well-planned hitting key points in the manning and surveillance of this border. And one of the things they were able to do was to use drones to hit some key points, hit a tank here, hit an observation tower here, uh, hit a border crossing here. And it is worth noting that they seem to have been learning some of the lessons that we've seen out of Ukraine, that a much weaker force by using technologies that now you can you can pick this stuff up some of the stuff up at best buy right can get a jump on a much more powerful military and some of that is what we saw certainly in the early in the early days of the ukraine war and i make this point uh because it's this is something that the u.s is going to have to take cognizance of because we are the ultimate big heavy military power that by definition is almost always to the extent we're going to come into conflict it's almost never going to be a peer military it can be close if we got into a conflict with china that's another country with a big military but even china we have more stuff more technology than them more bombs uh but Weaker countries can get a jump on us using the latest technology, and not all, not not just the technology that you know only governments can come up with. Some of which technology is is even civilian technology. So, something to to 
to have in the back of your mind. Um, another thing, as as this has unfolded, um, and you know, for what it's worth, the the death toll now seems to be about twelve hundred Israelis, almost all of whom were killed almost before most of us knew this was even happening, um, and probably eight or nine nine hundred uh, Gazans. Who have died in the in in the in the course of the retaliation for this, um, and large numbers of wounded on 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 both sides. And one of the things that is that is hanging in the background with this is that uh, you know Hamas is a they have rockets, they have RPGs, they have machine guns. Uh, but basically, this is not a a serious army in the sense of having tanks and planes and all that kind of stuff. To the north of Israel is still not a pure army, but a much more powerful force, and that's Hezbollah, that is just across the border um, in Lebanon and basically controls the part of Lebanon that is immediately adjacent to uh, Israel. And they have they are they are. Uh, much closer with Iran. They are co-religionists. They're both uh, Shia Islam, both uh, Shia Muslim states exactly, but groups. And um, I note that here because they have much more sophisticated rocketry, much more sophisticated kind of everything. Again, they're not a an army in the sense that the U.S. Army is, that the Israeli, uh, that the IDF is, but a much more powerful force. And so what's kind of hanging over all of this is, are they going to attack from the north? Because then you have a two-front situation that is, that is, to put it mildly, much more complex, uh, much more dangerous for, for, um, for the Israelis. And there's all sorts of factors that play into that. What could happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that that brings us to another another point that I think is important to bear in mind in this, and that is that, in large part, because of Lebanon and Hezbollah, the U.S. President Biden has sent a aircraft carrier group to basically off the coast of of Israel and Lebanon not doing anything yet, but sending it there. And just today, they announced that they're sending a second carrier group into the, into the Mediterranean. So you've got one that is going to be sort of off the coast, you know, for, far enough off the coast that they're not, you know, they don't want to get too close because then you can have a stray rocket hit a ship and all stuff like that, but close enough. And then another one in the Mediterranean. So could get there very quickly if it wanted to. So I don't think anybody thinks that the U.S. has any intention of getting involved militarily in any of this. But this is important to know because this is still a major, major show of force. It's, it, it sort of bucks up the Israelis, say that we're kind of backing them up potentially militarily. But it sends a very clear message to uh, Hezbollah, uh, other Iranian proxies in um, basically in, in Syria, and to Iran that if it came to it, the U.S. is already there in force. So if Iran had any idea of kind of having all of its proxies attack at once, opening a second front in the north of Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the U.S. has a carrier group right there 
that could get involved immediately. And if it wanted to, it has a second that is going to be very close by and could get involved. Just in case um, you're not familiar with these terms, what a carrier group is, it's a an aircraft carrier, which is the, the sort of the centerpiece capital ship of the modern US Navy, with a small flotilla of additional ships that travel with it. Those are there for uh, to defend the aircraft carrier, um, also have attack capacities. They, they operate as a group. And again, these are, these are kind of the centerpiece of the modern U.S. Navy. This is how the United States um, projects force with its, with its Navy. So again, this is a big, big show of force. And it's, we should all understand the significance of it and who it's meant to threaten overall you know, who we're kind of sending a signal to. It's it's about Hezbollah and Iran, basically. So that's another point. Um, the last point, which I will just flag for your attention, and I mentioned this in a, uh, in a post earlier today, is almost since the, since the beginning of when this happened, and we're like four, I don't know, four plus days into this now, um, there have been reports that Egypt sent Israel some kind of warning that something like this was coming and that the Israelis basically didn't pay attention or didn't give it, you know, give it the importance, the attention that it, that it merited. And uh, in addition to that, the, the flavor of these reports are that the Israeli government was focused on the West Bank and not just focused on the West Bank in general. The current Israeli government is heavily dependent on two extremist parties that are um, strongly identified with, made up with extremist settlers in the West Bank. And um, so when they say focus on the West Bank, they don't just mean like, oh, there's some you know commotion on the West Bank and they're kind of focusing the, the Israeli military on the West Bank. These extremist, extremist settlers go on these kind of like wilding expeditions to adjacent Palestinian villages and towns. And look, both of these sides kind of, you know, uh, there are, there are violent elements on, 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 on both sides of this in, in, in the West Bank. Uh, but the current government has a heavy dependence on the Israeli settler side of that stuff. So when they say focused on the West Bank, it means kind of like, you know, getting the uh, Israeli military there to, to back up, manage, keep an eye on things with the, their supporters, with the current government supporters in the West Bank. Uh, so the idea is they didn't, they're focused on the West Bank. They kind of like, don't, don't bother us about what's going on down in the South. So... The accusation here isn't just that they kind of miss something. It goes to the sort of the whole essence of what the current Israeli government is about. Very focused on uh, these extremist groups that have now been welcomed into the current Israeli government and focusing the Israeli military on taking care of those folks as opposed to defending the country. Now, Again, that's the sort of the flavor of the accusation. Uh, so you have these reports. Uh, the prime minister's office, Prime Minister Netanyahu, they denied it. 
Um, the initial report said that the, I believe the head of Egyptian intelligence actually contacted Netanyahu directly, said, hey, some coming here, and that this was 10 days out from what proved to be the attacks. It's always hard to know in these cases, how specific was it? Because flare-ups of violence happen all the time in this, in this part of the world. So just what they were warning about, how much it was distinct from I'm sure the kind of warnings they get all the time is a big question. So uh, that was denied. Subsequent to there, there's been all sorts of reporting back and forth with slightly different versions of events. But it's been very hard for me to uh, make sense of just, just what to make of it. But today, um, Chairman McCall, who's the head, who's the... Um, the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee made a statement and he said, we know that Egypt gave Israel a warning three days out. And we don't know, so we don't know, you know, why they, how they missed it, why they didn't react, blah, 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 blah. He also said that he's not clear on what level the warning was at. Again, there's sort of like operational stuff, five layers beneath the prime minister. And then there's stuff that, you know, there's all sorts of layers, government layers that warnings can be made on. But the key here is this takes it out of just anonymous sources in Egypt and the prime minister's office and, and different Israeli news outlets saying things. This is now the, the US government, basically. McCall's a House Republican. He's generally a normal player. He's not some Matt Gates, Jim Jordan weirdo. Um, so this is real. This is going to continue to be an issue, and I don't think we know exactly where it's going to go. Um, look, everybody here has their own interests, their own, you know, no one here is a neutral. Something terrible happened here, and everybody wants to get away from culpability for it. So even though I have no sympathy whatsoever for uh, Netanyahu or his government, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to say, oh, this is this is did this didn't just happen on your watch you're responsible you fucked up we warned you and you didn't do anything um and uh the egyptians have their own fish to fry here uh it's also true we don't know exactly what kind of warning but needless to say in the current climate in israel th these are explosive explosive charges as they would be in any country we, are, we had our own version of this after 9-11 with, you know, this, th that bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. presidential daily brief, I don't know, a few months out before the attacks. Um, even more so, though, and this is the last point that we're going to get to get to the, the speaker's race. I saw a lot of people saying um right after this happened, oh, this is, you know, there's going to be this rally around the flag effect and uh, this will solve all of Benjamin Netanyahu's problems for him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is not what has happened. There has been a tremendous national solidarity rally around the flag effect in Israel, but it has not been around the current government. There is a tremendous amount of anger uh, toward the current government, at least for now, um, because they let this happen. Not necessarily, that, that's kind of setting aside this question of did they get a specific warning, stuff like that. 
this goes to the sort of the, the very basic essence of what the Israeli state and what Israeli culture is about. The government is supposed to prevent stuff like this from happening. And they didn't, obviously, right? And this comes in a context when the country was already very, very divided about Netanyahu, uh, about this judicial coup plan they've been pushing about uh, basically handing a lot of the state structure over to these extremist parties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this comes in a climate where there is a tremendous amount of anger and sense of betrayal towards feeling toward, toward the current government. And that is obviously in a, in a certain sense muted by that sense of collective solidarity in the sense that you know the country is is at war right they've got things to focus on as of about 36 hours ago they had called up 300,000 reservists i believe that's been up to 600,000 reservists so like a significant part of the country has been mobilized as as soldiers a lot's going on there but keep an eye on this whole issue of this alleged Egyptian heads up and whether it was ignored in whatever sense or another. That's the kind of thing that um, that's not going to go away. And the fact that McCall said this today suggests that not only that there's something to it, but that the US knows details about it, which takes it out of just something that the Egyptian and Israeli government can kind of fight over about what happened and so on and so forth like that. So uh, a lot going on there. Um, I will. One thing I want to note here is is that this is this is a topic that you know we're not going to do a lot of reporting on in our reporting capacity because this is totally outside of our out outside of our our expertise domain. We're not over there. We don't you know our, our reporting capacity is not designed for these kind of topics. I will continue writing about it and sort of trying to ex explain at whatever level of generality that I that I that I, I, I can. But let's, uh, let's move on to what was last week, the big, the big sort of emerging news crisis, which was the overthrow of, of, of Kevin McCarthy. And, uh, you know, this is, this is intersected with the Israel story, because for the moment, there's kind of no functioning House of Representatives. And because of that, there's no ability to, you know, to pass any legislation or to pass like an aid package for Israel. I don't think Israel needs really needs much of an aid aid package, certainly in the short run. They've, you know, the IDF's a pretty a pretty powerful army. Um, they're not, they don't have a big shortage of money. But in any case, that it's obviously the two things have kind of intersected. Just today, the House GOP caucus had its caucus meeting to elect a new speaker, asterisk. Normally, the caucus gets together and decides who their nominee for speaker is. Then you go to the floor. Every member of the caucus votes for that person, that person's speaker, right? That's, that's how it works. Uh, but obviously, that's not how the Republican caucus works. Steve Scalise uh, defeated Jim Jordan. Uh, I believe it was 113 to 99. And so, again, by the normal way things operate, that means Steve Scalise is the next speaker. But it's, we're still not quite sure if if he's going to if if all of them are going to are going to back him there was an effort to bring this all to the floor today kind of like let's just vote on it before anybody gets weird right and that seems to have already been knocked down enough people are, have en enough members of the caucus have come forward to say dude we're not we're not doing this today so 
drop that. And that's where we are. And I don't think we know quite what's going to happen. Just out of my, um, out of, <laughs> out of, as as I'm talking here, I noticed that one of our colleagues dropped in a statement from George Santos, basically saying, I'll vote for Steve Scalise if you guarantee me I cannot be expelled. So that's his price. And there's, a, I guess there's at least already three other members who said they won't vote for Scalise. So that's, that's four if you include Santos. So it's already getting rough. So uh, Kate Riga. Are we going to have a speaker this week? Honestly, I if I had had to put money on it last week, I would have said no. Um, things are so fluid and weird right now. I mean, I think we would have guessed that Scalise would have won the kind of closed door nomination hearing. Um, now, the question, you know, the question is at the beginning of this closed door meeting, they were debating voting on a rule that would have said the nomination only goes to the person who can get the same number of votes that they're going to need to win on the House floor. The idea being lock it down, like you say, kind of grease the skids so you go from this meeting room to the House floor and there are no surprises. They voted mostly this effort led by Scalise's people to table that motion. So Scalise only won with the majority of you know the Republican caucus, not the majority of the House. Um, so... Obviously, the difference between those two numbers is pretty important, considering that now, like you said, we have a cluster of always gyms who who say, at least now, they're not going to vote for Scalise. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of saying the quiet part out loud and saying Scalise has a serious form of cancer and that she doesn't want to vote for him. She's also a Jordan person. And then you had this handful who were like, it's ridiculous that we might go to the f- the full house, you know, two minutes after we got out of the room. So those people seem, you know, kind of easiest to sway upon first glance because of the way to kind of ameliorate them is just to say, okay, we'll vote tomorrow. Then you've kind of got that taken care of. But- although, I, although I would say, though, I kind of read that as give us a you need to give us a little time to decide if we're going to make trouble. Right. And I think that's what a lot of the always gyms are doing as well, kind of keeping themselves in the main character barrel, like they want reporters to be focused on them as the potential holdouts. Uh, You know, they might be kind of crafting some kind of concessions behind the scenes, or as you say, with George Santos, very much in front of the scenes. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think we were of the mind that Scalise had the pretty clear advantage just in terms of, you know, the whip operation, the fact that he's in leadership, he knows a lot of members, et cetera, et cetera. That's still true. Whether he's got the votes right now to win on the House floor, totally, totally unclear. Might not come clear until we actually get to the House vote because House Republicans, unlike House Democrats, don't just have a much weaker motivation to kind of not make the party look foolish. It's that's just not really what drives them. A lot of these people define themselves in opposition to party leadership and to the quote unquote establishment. So, you know, being the kind of being the rebel, being the Matt Gates, like that appeals to a sizable number. And it doesn't even have to be a sizable number when your majorities are this slim. So now we've got the Scalise people kind of whipping behind the scenes, trying to see if they can win over these people. And a lot of these people are the usual suspects in terms of like, what do you want, man? You know, it's not like these are 
generally kind of very policy minded, wonkish, like, I just want to get my pet legislation onto the floor. No, you know, it's like these are Nancy Macyan people who want to be in front of TV cameras and want to do a hit on CNN later tonight and then maybe go over to Alex Jones. And, you know, that's who he's working with because that's who the party has emboldened and empowered. So, yeah, we're in this like weird, fluid place where Scalise won the nomination. You know, yay for Scalise. Jordan is not going to fight it. He said that he would introduce Scalise on the House floor. Oh, he did. Um, I, ha- I hadn't seen uh, th- that. I hadn't. I hadn't seen him officially say that. So that's at least an inch. Okay, so he's yeah. So makes maybe sense that- for him. Yeah. That might bring over the always gyms. You know, we'll see if Jordan also kind of gets some kind of consolation prize out of this because with Scalise moving up in the pecking order, then you've got his old job of majority leader open, even though we already know there are a few people interested there. You know, the reshuffling of leadership creates potentially new opportunities, though Jordan might kind of feel satisfied with his big uh, his big committee post. But yeah, so that's where we are right now. And then it's also been funny because in the last few days, you've got just some hilarious jockeying from Kevin McCarthy, where he's been doing this kind of dance of like, yeah, you know, it, like like people who might run for president doing that thing of like, well, who can ever know what the future will hold? You know, he's doing that kind of hinting that maybe he wants people to like come beg him to serve again as if he's like this indispensable legislative mind that they can't live without um, and kind of keeping the, the door open to him potentially uh, jumping into the race um, or like withholding the support of his people. And we we kind of touched last episode on the fact that there's some bad blood between Scalise and McCarthy. So that is probably playing in a little bit the sheer pettiness of McCarthy saying he's not going to kind of throw his weight behind his deputy man and, you know, make his path any easier. So that's where things are right now. It's it's messy. Um, and you do. It's funny because there's this like tendency to make everything very serious, I think. And there was some like chattering about how this house resolution kind of saying that you're standing in solidarity with Israel, like it can't pass the house because we don't have a speaker. And it's like, obviously the situation Israel is really serious passing a house resolution, which is little more than like uh, someone typed up this few paragraphs and uh, the house passed it, you know, that, that they're standing in solidarity. I don't think is like the going to be the big, legislative lockdown of our time. Um, But as you say, the House can't function. Doesn't really matter. They don't do that much either. But the next shutdown coming close. So there is like some amount of speed. But I think for House Republicans right now, it's coming down more to do you want to risk another 15 rounder, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 there were two in, in the piece you published an hour or so ago. There was what, Lauren Boebert, who was the other one? Oh, was, Max Miller. Okay, Max Miller, who I don't, you know, it's hard to keep track of these guys. But um, it, with I think we see with someone like Bobert, you know, this is uh, I don't even wait. Did she did she actually vote to unseat McCarthy? Mm-mm. She didn't, did she? Okay, which so, was a kind of a surprise. Like right. there was um, murmuring in the chamber when she voted. Right. So with with people like her, I don't know what I think, you know, you never want to be too cynical. But with someone like her, this is kind of like, wait, 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 wait. There's there's an opportunity. You know, we're not going to let an opportunity for a lot more Fox hits 
and a lot more avails to go down the tubes. We're just having, we're just getting started here. Mm-hmm. I still have to, I still have to live down the, the Beetlejuice situation. So why, why are we done here? You know, there is that kind of when you have, when you normally have, you have a caucus vote. Okay. We've decided as a caucus, it's Scalise. We're going to go down there and I'll vote for Scalise, even if he wasn't our first choice. That's, you know, that's not exciting for the, for the backbench members of the party. There's no drama. You just go and vote like you're supposed to vote. That's, that's being part of a political party. Um, so, and, and to, you know, to the extent that there is such a thing, Scalise is more of a right winger than McCarthy was, although that's not, it's hard to say what operative meaning that had since, since um, McCarthy's calling card was to do everything those folks wanted to make sure he could be speaker. Um, so, you know, th- this isn't uh, the only thing that, conceivably here was, you know, an issue of, I I wouldn't even call it an issue of substance. It was an issue, an issue that was concrete was whether you would change these rules for how many people need, uh, you need to do a a motion to vacate, you know, to change the rule that uh, unseated McCarthy. Now, you know, whether or not that, you know, they talked about, oh, we're going to make it from one to five, whatever, you know, these things kind of don't matter because, having one person to, you know, kind of pull that trigger, that doesn't mean you're going to win the vote, right? They, but they've got this very close margin and, you know, he did that. And even people who didn't want him to do it ended up voting to support it and unseated McCarthy, right? So, um, they just, there's just some element of this caucus that just doesn't want this to be done doesn't want to go back to you know what counted as normal into in until a few weeks ago and as 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 Kate made clear you know we're now about a month out from the next shutdown cliff um and you know just play that out in your head if this is if this is Steve Scalise you know there was actually a a kind of a telling moment at the town hall that they had I mean call it a town hall, a kind of a caucus town hall that they had yesterday to, you know, to kind of each to have Scalise and Jordan make their case. And both of them basically were forced to say like, yeah, we're going to do another CR because what else are we going to do? We don't have that. We haven't passed any, we haven't done any appropriation stuff. And I think they, what is it? Uh, Jordan said he'd do like a 1% cut. Um, but, you know, this is just going to keep going on you know, and in, in forever indefinitely. Yeah. I mean, that's a piece that's kind of more interesting to me than who the baton passes to is the motion to vacate question, because I don't think this will happen because I think Scalise has already said he's fine keeping the rule. But you could see now that Scalise is the, you know, presumptive next speaker, him saying, by the way, we got to change the motion to vacate because why in the world would you take the job otherwise? I mean, this ensures that his tenure is going to be, you know, about the same duration as McCarthy's because you can be as David Duke sans baggage as you want. Like you have to pass certain bills periodically every few months. You have to, you have no choice. And so 
you know, maybe you could argue that Scalise is further right than than McCarthy and he would have allowed the government to shut down. OK, and then what? And, and leave it shut down until the next election? I mean, does that seem electorally savvy for Republicans? So it's just, you know, it, it doesn't matter that they're further right than McCarthy because the problem that hounded him is the same problem that hounded Paul Ryan and John Boehner. You know, it's this far right entity that just doesn't want to govern. That's only sole motivation is breaking the government. And that's going to come to a head again, obviously, in November. Um, And then again, when we, you know, pretty soon, we're going to start talking about the the teeth in the debt ceiling bill, the part where we get to uh, the end of the year. And we're going to have to start thinking about the measures that they put into that law to prevent the endless stream of CRs and to kind of force the government to be properly fully funded at some point. And those cuts are draconian. And they kind of also pinpoint with with target precision, the only government entities that government or that Republicans ever care about, you know, the, the Defense Department type thing. So the whoever becomes speaker is in an impossible situation if the motion to vacate remains at any threshold where these like eight to 10 people can kind of take the wheels off the wagon. And there was some kind of heated debate about this a few days ago where some House Republicans were saying we should make it a, you know, a majority vote to spark the motion or something that would give them a little bit of insulation the next time that Matt Gates decides he hasn't been in headlines enough lately. Um, but it hasn't come up at all in recent years, you know, or in recent days. As far as I know, Scalise is not at all planning to make it a condition of his speakership, which y- you can see why, because that'll also imperil a handful of votes that he needs to win. So it's looking, you know, and we're, we're tracking this closely, but it's looking like if we barrel into the speakership, if Scalise some, you know, picks it, gets through no matter, you know, how many rounds it takes him, if motion to vacate is the same, Hey, you know, his fate is written in stone, as is the guy who comes after him, as is anyone who ever serves as the speaker for House Republicans. Yeah. And it's it's I, one for our listeners. One one point to keep in mind here is that there's the motion to vacate. But what makes the motion to vacate a big deal is that they've got such a tiny majority. You, you know, you, you have a 20, 30 vote majority. This ceases to be that big an issue because you know that that's that's just a lot more cushion so in some ways the you know it's the it's the narrowness of the majority that is the you know kind of uh the the, the puddle of gasoline they're sitting in the 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 motion to vacate just makes it a little easier to light a match right but i mean they're they're always on on um on 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 kind of shaky ground one thing to Again, we're we're so far uh, we're so far afield for any kind of orderly process of government. But one thing to keep in mind is this situation in Israel. This is not going to be done in a few days. This is going to go on for some time. Um, I have, and again, this is just speculation, but I've been trying to think about historical analogs. I think the historical analog is the siege of Beirut in, I don't remember, it was 1981 or 1982. Um, basically, uh, you know, the, the PLO had uh, set up shop in Lebanon. And the whole point of that 
invasion of Lebanon, which set the you know set the stage for so much that has uh, come since then, is to expel the PLO from Lebanon, which they eventually did. And uh, <laughs> you know that went on for a while. And uh, Gaza is a very small uh, area of territory. In, in any case, the point is this is going to be going on for a while. It's it's certainly going to be going on um, by the time Thanksgiving runs around uh, rolls around, which is at least the the recess for Thanksgiving. I believe is November seventeenth, which is when the next uh, government shutdown cliff is. So one thing that is going to play into this is that the the bad optics of trying to shut the government down are significantly higher when you've got an, an international crisis going on. That's obvious, especially when, again, as I said, I don't think anybody has any thought that the US has any plans to or any high likelihood that the US is going to be involved in this militarily. But we are making a pretty big show of force in that area. And when that's happening, the idea that you're going to shut down the federal government or even have one House of Congress just not functioning, that, that, that just seems like a bigger deal than it normally would. So all of these things are going to be colliding over the next, um, over the next few weeks. And you know, that's, that's where we are with that. And an interesting thing to keep an eye on there is going to be when there is an effort to you know, give Israel aid. Um, we're already seeing some stirrings of kind of tying it to Ukraine aid, uh, you know, a way to kind of force this sect of House Republicans that have decided to kind of abandon Ukraine to follow through. And that'll be interesting because if that's in the hands of a new speaker, a new speaker who's sitting under the sword of Damocles motion to vacate, I mean, what do you do? You know, do you kind of give in to the the small group of House Republicans that don't want to help Ukraine anymore? Do you maybe decouple it and endanger its passage in the Senate? So, I mean, that's going to be, I think, a specifically kind of concrete thing that's coming up. Um, and, and one more thing I wanted to say on the motion to vacate is that we discussed this briefly last episode, but the idea that when Paul Ryan was being forced into the speakership, a job that he did not want, um, and that, you know, they kind of came on their hands and knees asking if he would do the job. And he was initially saying, I'll take it if we change the motion to vacate. I don't want to be, you know, dumped on my ass two minutes after I'm agreeing to do this for you. Even then, when he didn't really want the gavel, he still backed off that request, bowing to the, you know, then the Mark Meadows is the right of the House Republicans who, why would they give up that power? You know, most people in the House are relatively powerless. And especially this kind of crop that's being the the troublemakers this time around, they're basically all like freshmen or sophomores. You know, they don't have positions of prominence. This like gives them huge sway over party leadership. So, um, you know, just something to keep in mind that I think it's very clear that a, the speakers, the next speaker's success will be tied to whether there is a motion to vacate or not. And it seems really pretty impossible to me for for Scalise or whoever it is to kind of make that a condition of the speakership and still manage to get, you know, the 217 votes. Yeah. I don't even think as you, as you suggest, I don't think they're even going to try. They, there's, there's sort of no, no point. Um, so tell us about these oral arguments. What's the, what's the story here? So 
This was the first redistricting case of the term. It came out of South Carolina. The parameters are basically this, which is after the 2020 uh, census, South Carolina had to even out the population in its various congressional districts. Namely, the first congressional district had gotten way too big and the sixth congressional district had gotten much too small. The sixth one is where Jim Clyburn has held for, you know, since 1993. District one is currently Nancy Mace's district held by a Republican for a long time, flipped by Joe Cunningham in like a kind of a huge upset. Um, And then Mace won it back narrowly and then redistricting shenanigans and all of a sudden it's a super safe seat. But so what they did to deal with this, um, you know, evening out of the population is one would think you would just take voters from your overstuffed first congressional district, shift them into the pretty empty sixth congressional district and be done with it. What they did is they moved all these Republican leaning areas from the sixth district into the first district and then plucked out black voters from the first district to transport them back to the sixth district with such precision to make sure that the black voting age population in district one stayed at 17 percent, which they've They've determined if it's 17% or less, that's pretty safe for Republicans. If you get from 17 to 20% Black voters, toss up territory. And if you're 20% or higher, that district is going to go to a Democrat. So this precision kind of moving Republicans in, plucking Black voters out and putting them back in the other district, that's that's what's at the Supreme Court this morning. Now, the catch is, and what made these Supreme Court oral arguments the most bizarre, through the looking glass thing I've ever witnessed is as of 2019, the Supreme Court said that federal courts can no longer hear partisan gerrymandering cases, that those are beyond the reach of the courts because they have political aspects to them, blah, blah, blah. So the only thing that federal courts can hear are racial gerrymandering cases now. State courts can still hear partisan ones. So South Carolina came into this these arguments saying, oh yeah, obviously we were gerrymandering. Totally, man. Like we're Republicans. We want as many districts as possible to be safe Republican seats. We did this. We exported Democratic voters out of this district on purpose. We did not want a Democrat to ever win it again. And that's what we did. So you've got the justices and the attorneys on both sides being totally candid that the South Carolinian lawmakers are distorting democracy completely, like choosing their voters, making it virtually impossible for them to lose more than one of the congressional delegation seats to a Democrat. But they just have to say, no, 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 nothing about race. Absolutely has nothing to do with race whatsoever. This is just about partisan lean, which adds another kind of farcical layer to this whole thing, because especially in the South, race and partisan lean are pretty inextricably connected. So you've got one side saying this is about party, one side saying this is about race, when the reality is we're mostly talking about black Democrats and white Republicans. So and just so I understand, so so and the, the the reason for that is that the court has said, if you can say it's politics or it's you know it's partisan politics as as opposed to race, we shouldn't even be here. Like mm-hmm. that's that's just that that means uh, 
you're done in the federal courts. I mean, obviously, these two are never going to be really uh, fully divisible, but that's why they're basically so openly saying, yes, we our goal here was to uh, remove enough Democrats. So um, so so Nancy Mace has a has a safe exactly. seat, because if they can prove that, then the discussion's over. Right. And how do you how do you prove it either way when those Democrats are mostly black people? Right. So like it was just you. I mean, you had Samuel Alito kind of just like going after the individual experts who had testified before the district federal court panel, which is also not the Supreme Court's mandate here. Like redistricting cases, I I won't get into it. Maybe our listeners want to like kill themselves, but it's a really unique setup in the court system, whereas it goes from a panel of three federal judges with direct review to the Supreme Court. That's how redistricting cases work. And so what the Supreme Court is supposed to be doing right now is deciding whether the district panel, which found against the state legislators, which found that it was a a pretty precision, clear racial gerrymander, finding whether they made a quote unquote clear error in their decision, that and that by that standard, the appellate court is supposed to give great deference to the district court. They're not supposed to kind of like go back through the trial record and being like, ah, I don't know if this was like factually correct. They're just looking for a really clear error. And it's written into the standard that just because the Supreme Court might have decided this differently, that's not enough for them to overturn the district panel. If the only standard is if the district panel arrived at a quote unquote plausible conclusion based on the record before them, the Supreme Court is supposed to say, okay, that's like none of our business. We're not supposed to be kind of micromanaging the lower courts. But it was really clear today that that's not what they're going to do. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you had Roberts was aggressive going after um, the kind of voter side today. You had basically all the conservatives vocally and plainly in support of the South Carolina lawmakers, which is going to leave us in a place where, oh, you want to do partisan gerrymandering? Go with God. Federal courts are not going to care. And now if you're in a situation where oopsie daisy, a lot of overlap between race and partisan leaning, good luck proving a racial gerrymander because if black people are also Democrats, then I guess Southern states win. That's just, that's like the assumption we're going into. So let me ask you, because what you're talking about for our, for our listeners is is an elementary aspect of what appellate courts are. The idea is is that when you you have a tr- you have a trial or a hearing in a in a in a trial court, and then you appeal questions of law, not questions of fact. And as Kate says, there are some there are legal principles that allow you to kind of you know, look under that cover if things are just crazy, if 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 a if a an absurd finding of fact is made. But again, this is what appellate courts are. You review questions of law, not not findings of fact. And and so that's what we're talking about here. The findings about is it a racial gerrymander or not were done at the uh, I guess at, at the trial court level. So in the in the in the oral arguments, were they were the conservatives basically? Did it look like they were going to try to say, "Well, this isn't"? They, in fact, they made a, a an implausible finding of fact, and that's going to be our our road. Or were they just kind of saying, you know, the, the new uh, under the new principle of of whatever we want to do, 
we're going to do whatever we want to do. Did they did they signal there? What what what? The, I think what? they're going to cloak it under the first because I mean they were doing like this is the kind of situation where a lot of it relies on experts, right? Because you need someone who is an expert in you know map drawing or kind of understanding these granular population level things to say okay, well, it was much, much more likely that you would get booted out of the first district if you were a black Democrat than a white Democrat, right? And like these various precincts that have over a thousand black voters, they all got exported, right? Like, so you had the conservatives kind of picking at the various experts, debating whether the district court had properly weighted them, saying that the plaintiff should have come up with an alternative map themselves, which is not a requirement in these cases and would be kind of an insurmountable burden um, for the plaintiffs. So it's pretty clear that they're going to go back and say the district court was wrong. Um, you know, they and, and they're going to get persnickety. They're going to say like they gave this one guy, you know, too much credence. And, and this guy's been doing this job for 20 years. So uh, so what could you possibly have to say against him? You know, Alito went on this whole rant about how people are being like, too mean to the cartographer who had worked with the legislator for a long time. So, you know, it's just, it's pretty clear. I, I would put my money on a six, three in favor of South Carolina here. And it's just like, it's, this is the Roberts court legacy, right? Is like green lighting, a total distortion of democracy in particular, you know, the old Confederacy, just green lighting all of that there and taking away all the reform sense that are meant to kind of keep these racist and anti-democratic, you know, machinations in check. They've ripped all that up. And now we're just at this stage where it's kind of like, good job, South Carolina. You know, it, your partisan gerrymander, that's, that's okay on our watch. So go with God. I'm, I, it, it strikes me that, you know, again, this, the basic principle that appellate courts don't, don't, um, make independent findings of fact is pretty foundational. I mean, it's not, it's not unprecedented because as I, as, as, as we said, um, the law has, has paths available, um, wherein an appellate court can say your finding of facts simply doesn't meet any test of rationality. This was, this makes no sense. So we're going to we're going to kind of overturn it on those grounds. But that's pretty clearly not what you have here. Um, this is I, I, I don't. It, it's really impossible not to say, at a minimum, that there are reasonable arguments on both sides of this, and and so that is kind of the that's the part. I mean, we know what the Roberts Court is about about when it comes to the Voting Rights Act, notwithstanding um, the recent case, was that in Alabama or Mississippi? I'm, I'm Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. So I thought, okay. Uh, in Alabama. But uh, this, this just shows that, that you know, it's a, it's a results-oriented jurisprudence. You know, you, 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 it's clear where you want to go and you're going you're gonna to go where you want to go. And that's just, that's yeah. just it. And let this serve as a damper for anyone who did that dumbass like post Alabama. Well, look at John Roberts being the like responsible centrist. Like, oh, please. You know, the Alabama decision was a welcome surprise for sure. But 
this is John Roberts, like his own personal number one handiwork. Like obviously his core will be known for the abortion first and foremost, but the crusade against voting rights, that's his thing. You know, that's what he's brought. And that's the direction that he has steered this court, even pre, you know, getting like all the kind of Trumpian judges on it. So, you know, this is who he is. This is the kind of case he loves. And the shredding of voting rights across the country is to his biggest legacy. Yeah, I mean, I'll just just say a different flavor of 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 the same thing that they could have they could have um, upheld this lower court case and still had their principle in effect. It, it, you know, it really wouldn't have lost them much. And, and the reality is that um, most, well, the, in the nature of things, uh, the federal judiciary in the South is pretty Republican leaning because, you know, you, you defer to the Senate, all that kind of stuff. There's a, you know, the, um, the federal judiciary broadly maps the regional political contours of, of the, of, of the country. So, uh, you know, you could have let this one go, let 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 Nancy take a bit of a hit, Nancy Mace, um, and still had your principle. But you know, when you've got six justices, you don't have to make compromises. And this is also this is fundamentally and inextricably connected to the 2024 elections. Like there's a reason that kind of all these right wing judges are going full right wing judge with these redistricting cases. And it's because a lot of them, you know, Alabama, South Carolina, we've got one in Tennessee, we've got one in Louisiana. If the kind of voting reform minded side was upheld, these would probably result in extra democratic seats in these states. And like, maybe you're only getting one out of Georgia and one out of Louisiana. But when you kind of combine all the active cases together, that's five or six seats. And we're right now, what the majority is like seven or eight, depending on absences. So, I mean, that's the ball game, right? So there's a reason why right-wing litigants are going hard after this stuff and that these right-wing judges you know, kind of long building comfort with just saying like, no, kind of fuck the black voters is really coming to a head right at this moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and again, for it's, it's seven or eight, but there's that there's, it, it always depends on how you want to think of it because it's seven or eight, but you move four and then it's, and then you change the, you know, then you change the majority. So, it, you know, even even a literal handful of, of, of these races could turn control of the House. And then you have this other uh, re, a, a very different context of redistricting that that is now going to uh, come to pass in the state of New York. And the GOP could easily lose three or four seats just with that redistricting. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's funny at this point. You know, both. Well, I'm not sure the Senate's too close to call, unfortunately. But I think there's kind of a consensus that you know, if you were betting, you'd bet for the Democrats to take back the House next year and to lose the Senate. Um, you know, it's conceivable they could lose the Senate by a significant margin. I mean, there's so, you know, there's so many there's so many tough races for the Democrats. Democrats could have a have a you know win the presidency, win back the House. And lose the Senate by two or three seats, just just because of the seats that are um, that are up in 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 twenty twenty four. But uh, you know, 
There you go. And on that uh, cheerful note. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we wanted, we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't have everything be the cheeriness of this, of the, the Hamas, uh, Israel Hamas war in, God. in, in, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. But, but there you go. Um, I, I guess at a minimum, it's, it, it seems, let, let's have a bet. Let's have a, a gentle person's bet here. Do we have a speaker by the next episode of the podcast? I say yes. I say yes too. Which takes oh, a lot that's of the drama. Unfun. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, you got to you got to go first. That's no fair. But no, I I, I feel like the the national security Israel stuff kind of mm-hmm. looming now. I, I I I there was kind of a I, I before that I felt like there was kind of a sense of like maybe they'll just let this you know because once you decide like a handful of people are like let's. Let's not go too fast here. Well, hold up here. You know, at, <laughs> at what point, it's, it's not like a debt ceiling or a government shutdown where you say like, all right, this is, you know, this is going to close and this is all this kind of stuff. You know, why not just kick it a few more days? A few more hits for me on, on, on Hannity. You know, a <laughs> right. few more, a few more press avails outside the Capitol building. Like what's the big, you know, what's the big deal? Like we're not, right. we don't have a. We're not shutting the government down again until the until mid November, and like, this is fun. You know, we weren't <laughs> passing any legislation as it is. So um, anyway, so uh, that that's well, we'll see. You can bet against you can bet against Kate and I. Maybe <laughs> maybe we won't have a speaker. Yeah, and um, quick little plug just from our uh, second show that we are starting to roll out, and we're recording episodes to continue to put out um, in the Josh Marshall podcast feed that's called Belaboring the Point with me, uh, rotating TPM staff members and outside experts. Our first one was on Ukraine. Second one dropping soon. More in the works. So uh, check that out if your podcast thirst is insatiable. Yeah. Well, and if we have, you know, as always, if we have any breaking news uh, before last Wednesday, we may come in for a quick episode of the uh, signature podcast here, but uh, more, more podcast goodness coming one way or another. And I guess that's it for this week. All right. See you next week. See ya. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 